0: I think we have to be aware of how challenging it can be when politics that we don't align with are brought into our spiritual spaces. And we also have to make sure that we have cultural grounding too. That's not just about what we're against, but actually the the world that we wanna live in and rooting ourselves back in those traditions.
1: Welcome to Unsettled, a new podcast about Israel-Palestine and the Jewish diaspora. We're here to provide a space for difficult conversations and diverse viewpoints that are all too rare in American Jewish communities. I'm Emily Bell, one of the producers of Unsettled and your host for this episode. Today, we'll be hearing from Sarah Schley, a first-year rabbinical student at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Before I knew Sarah as a rabbi-to-be, I knew her as an activist— We first met in the summer of 2016 on a Center for Jewish Nonviolence Delegation to the West Bank. Sarah's spent years doing this activism work, having been involved with If Not Now since its founding in 2014, and she's faced considerable challenges along the way, from grappling with a Jewish education that didn't talk about the occupation to confronting the realities of the conflict on the ground. But Sarah didn't distance herself from Jewish community. Instead, she's committed the next six years of her life to becoming a rabbi. She's resolved to build an American Jewish community that not only includes anti-occupation politics, but roots them in Jewish values and spiritual practices. I especially wanted to connect with Sarah during the high holidays, and shortly before Rosh Hashanah, I took a bus from New York to Philly to speak with her. While the Jewish community takes time for deep self-reflection and atonement, I wanted to hear Sarah's reflections on her journey to becoming a rabbi and her views on the intersection of Judaism and anti-occupation work. One quick thing before we get started. Though Sarah is enrolled at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, during this interview, she's only speaking on behalf of herself and not for RRC or the Reconstructionist movement. Okay, let's jump in. So I thought in order to get us started, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and a little bit about how you got involved in anti-occupation work.
0: I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which I love very, very much, and grew up in the conservative movement. Um, Was really involved with my synagogue, went to Hebrew school three times a week, was involved with my United Synagogue Youth chapter, um, actually served as the social action chair, one year, my senior year, um, and my Judaism was a really important part of my identity. And also, I grew up in the city and most of the Jews in the area grew up in the suburbs. And so a lot of my friends that I saw on a day-to-day basis weren't Jewish. And that actually was a really amazing formative experience for me as a Jew because it gave me all of these opportunities to talk about Judaism and to have my friends come over for Shabbat dinner and actually see what that was like. And that that just gave me a lot of um, like pride as a Jew and my parents actually met in Israel in 1973 studying abroad at Hebrew University of um in Jerusalem and it was kind of funny I mean this is jumping ahead a little bit but when I studied abroad there in 2011 everyone would always be like oh so are you going to meet your husband <laughs> <laughs> studying abroad which is like really funny <laughs> um and so israel was a huge part of what it meant for me to be jewish Um, there was really no separation between support for israel and jewish identity and i went on like the first birthright trip i could sign up for but i'd say about a month or so before that birthright trip which was my freshman year of college um, i went to the university of minnesota i became friends with a palestinian american woman actually in my hebrew class at college and um, she started you know, telling me a lot about the struggles and the stories of Palestinians. And these were stories that I hadn't heard before. Or if I had heard them before, I had the talking points that my Hebrew school taught me to combat them with. And these stories started to sink in. And I have this vivid memory of calling my sister one day, crying, saying I felt like a bad Jew for thinking critical thoughts about Israel. And for me, that was actually like a big turning point that I actually felt like I had a choice there. Do I run away from this, or do I jump in? And ultimately decided I needed to spend a significant amount of time in Israel that was um, not birthright, that I had a little more space to explore, and decided to study abroad in Jerusalem in 2011. Um, it was I was just starting to grapple um, with the kind of the education I received growing up that I literally never heard a Jew criticize Israel until college. So for me, criticizing Israel and being Jewish was not something that went together. And here I was thinking critical thoughts about Israel and what did that mean about my Jewish identity. And I got back to the States after that semester and was kind of just figuring out how to get involved with anti-occupation work. Did a little bit of stuff with J Street, um, but not so, so much. And did a lot of other activist work, I a lot of workers' rights stuff, labor movement, um, women's rights work but never really found an anti-occupation home. And in 2014, it was during Operation Protective Edge, and like I said, I identify as an activist. So when I feel angry, I wanna act on that. So I actually didn't even allow myself to feel angry in 2014 because I was like, I don't even have an outlet for doing this, so I'm not even gonna let myself get there. So I really tried to avoid reading the news at that point. And I remember it was the New York Times article that came out about the four Gazan um, children that were killed on the beach. And at that point, I knew I had to do something. This thing called If Not Now had started in New York where Jews were doing the mourner's Kaddish inside and outside of Jewish in- institutions. And a few of my friends in D.C. like reached out and we were like, hey, we should do something. And we had a meeting the next day and planned two actions in one week. Um, and I emceed the action that we did, which was our big action on um, Tisha B'Av. I remember leaving that action where 100 people had showed up with very little notice and feeling like this is exactly what I need to be doing. Um, And for so long, I had, I think, deep down known that anti-occupation work, and specifically anti-occupation work in the Jewish community, was what the work that I wanted to be doing, and I finally had the outlet for that. Between 2014 and now, how has your anti-occupation
1: work grown, changed, been a part of your life, not been a part of your life?
0: Yeah, I don't think there's a way it's not a part of my life. (laughs) Um, I think a lot has changed in the past three years. I have really decided to dive into this. Also, throughout the last three years, I've spent more time in Palestine. I was a participant on the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, an organization that brings diaspora Jews um, to Palestine to do solidarity work. And then this past year, I was a trip leader on that delegation. And through that experience and firsthand experience I've had with the occupation, um, my my knowledge has really grown about what the -the on-the-ground reality of that looks like. And I also think that I am more honest about my stakes in the issue that there's a lot of amazing organizations that are doing anti-occupation work. And I realized the, the reason that I struggled for so long to find a home to do this work was because I don't think I fully understood my stake in the issue. And my stake is that I deeply believe that our communities, the American Jewish community's support for the occupation is deteriorating the soul of our people. And my work with If Not Now, I'm really honest about that. Like The Jewish community is worth fighting for. Um, And that's something that I think I've gotten a lot of clarity on the past few years.
1: So one of the stories that was most publicized this spring um, after the Center for Jewish Nonviolence trip Mm -hmm. had to do with Jerusalem Day and Mm -hmm. with you specifically. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell a little bit of that story about what happened on J-Day and what things
0: have been like for you after. Jerusalem Day is a really horrific, violent day in Jerusalem that um, kind of marks the anniversary of the quote-unquote reunification of Jerusalem, aka the um, conquering of East Jerusalem by Israel and the beginning of the occupation of East Jerusalem. And what happens every year is ultra-nationalists have a huge march that brings out thousands and thousands of people And they marched through the old city and marched through Jerusalem, um, and kind of as a way to demonstrate that Jerusalem is all theirs, that Jerusalem is all for the Jews. A lot of, if not now, members were going to be on the Center for Jewish Nonviolence delegation. And we decided that, you know, Jerusalem Day was two days after the delegation ended. And that this is such a horrific day that it should never be normalized and it should always be challenged. And especially at 50 years, it needs to be challenged. So we began conversation with um, groups in Israel, such as All That's Left, which mobilizes diaspora Jews living in the region, and Free Jerusalem, which is a um, Israeli activist group based in Jerusalem that does a lot of um, solidarity work there with Palestinians.
1: Sarah explained that the action was intended to delay the forced closure of Palestinian shops. She said that this process, which occurs every year in the Old City on this day, is also referred to as sterilization.
0: What has happened in the past is that, you know, that these ultra-nationalist Jews destroyed their stores, attacked them. So instead of saying, hey, maybe this march shouldn't be happening, they actually forced Palestinians to close their stores that day. I was very nervous for this action. I knew this is an extremely violent day. So. We decide to protest the sterilization process and what we do is we do a, we link arms and do a soft blockade um, at Damascus Gate, which is the the gate that enters into the Muslim Quarter. Um, And we link arms um, and we're singing and there's Uh, Israeli police there Um, we also before the like the Israeli police really did anything there was a group of about 150 to 200 people who were at the march early who kind of stormed us and were shoving us around and um, with some of us was very aggressive and they kind of ended up going through the Muslim quarter and that was a few minutes of pretty it was pretty chaotic and we didn't really know what was happening Uh, and then the Israeli police were there and they called for reinforcement and more Israeli border police came. And they start to shove us and they push us to the ground and they start to take us one by one. And what they do is they kind of create this barricaded area that they have arbitrarily set up and literally throw us on top of each other. And we decide this group of us to link arms again. At that point, they take us again, but much more aggressively. No one was on my left side. And a border police officer comes from behind and violently grabs me and he pulls my arm up, and I hear this splitting in my arm, and I, and I remember just, I was kind of in shock, and I knew something horrible had happened. I had not, it's, it's hard to separate your feeling and your hearing, I'm realizing, and it's like, did I feel that or did I hear that? And for me, it was both, but I visibly actually remember the sound of my arm breaking. And I'm in immense pain um, and the Palestinian Red Crescent comes and stabilizes my arm. They tell me they think it's a fracture and they rush me to the emergency room. And they actually didn't charge me for that ambulance ride um, as a form of solidarity, which was really beautiful. And I'm at the hospital and eventually they come out and they tell me it is a fracture and it's right above my elbow. And the next day, I remember I wanted to take a shower and I can't do it. I am like, I, my arm is, like my left arm, I completely can't move it. It's in a cast, I like, I have very little mobility. And this person who I don't know very well has to bathe me. And it was, an, it was a moment for me where I realized how much agency that I had lost. And yeah, and I, it was just really hard. <laughs>
1: Sarah ended up needing surgery. After her travel insurance refused to cover the cost of the operation, members of If Not Now raised the $26,000 and launched a Twitter
0: campaign that got her
1: travel insurance to eventually change their decision.
0: My plan was to stay in Israel for the month of June to do an Ulpan, which is a Hebrew intensive class, and I wanna stay. And I will say that the month of June was probably one of the hardest months of my life. it was incredibly intense to walk around Israel with a visible political injury in a country where a lot of people are not going to agree with the content of my injury. For a while I had a sling and then post-surgery I had a wrap on my arm and people would ask me all the time what happened to you and I didn't want to lie. Sometimes I would just say yeah my you know in in my Hebrew that was like not that great at that point you know I broke my arm right above the elbow, and then I needed surgery. And for a few people, that would satisfy them. And they'd be like, great. And for some people, they'd be like, no, 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 no. Like, what happened? You know? (laughs) And I would tell them, you know, because why would I, the person who, you know, who has had to suffer from the violence of this, try to cover up for what the Israeli police did to me? Why would I do PR for them? So it wasn't that I had like a tattoo that was like, you know, on my ass made by the occupation, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, people people were not shy to ask me. I'll just say that. So, what happened to me this summer with my arm was really horrible, and it is a daily reality of what life is like for Palestinians. Um, and a story that I think about a lot is a few weeks after my surgery, I went back to Samud Freedom Camp in Sarora, Palestine, and I was chatting with um, some of the Palestinian leaders there. And this, this guy who's from the village of Susia, um in the South Hemron Hills, you know, he was asking me how I was doing. I said I was starting physical therapy. And he just really casually said, oh, yeah, physical therapy is really hard. When settlers broke my arm physical therapy was definitely the hardest part of the process. And it was like, oh, that's actually what it means when we talk about the occupation being a daily nightmare for Palestinians, that like being violently attacked by settlers and by the Israeli government is a normal part of life. Can you
1: speak a little bit about that sometimes challenging intersection of witnessing and experiencing the occupation and also being committed to the American Jewish community?
0: Yeah. I think that as a future rabbi, it's really important that I approach this work with patience and with compassion and also with drive. And I think that it's really important for faith leaders to understand the complexity of. The role that israel plays in the the lives of american jews and you know I, I think about like man this connection is so strong is it about the political project is it about you know world Jewry and feeling responsible for jews around the world and i think it's somewhat a part of both of those things but i think it also gets to i believe that um, jews relationship with israel means a lot more than a political project and even a connection with the physical land. I think it is symbolic for a lot of the emotional needs that uh, our community needs. Emotional needs of self-determination, of um, of a, a need to feel proud of your people and feel like you have a shared culture and identity, and also a need for, for safety, for physical safety. And those are all things that I want too. We can access those things without supporting an occupation that oppresses Palestinians. And I really believe that. But I think that my role as a rabbi is going to be to demonstrate to the, to the Jewish people and actually make them believe, not just in words but in like physical belief, that that is possible. Um, and I don't think that we have done enough work to actually show our community that we can have self-determination and safety and pride without actually having that be um, based off of the oppression and domination of another people and I, I sometimes it's hard but I do believe our community is like is capable of that transformation even when I have doubts from time to time
1: You grew up in the conservative movement, and now you're at a Reconstructionist rabbinical college. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your choice to attend RRC, and tell a little bit about what Reconstructionist Judaism is?
0: Yeah, Um, so I grew up in the conservative movement, and there was a lot I really loved about that, Um, and I loved a lot of the tradition that I grew up with, and I think over the past several years as an adult, I've I've had the opportunity to kind of figure out what Ju- Judaism means for me. And I'm still learning a lot about Reconstructionism. Um, and one thing I really love about the Reconstructionist movement is that I think that there's a there's a really strong connection between holding on to that, those traditions and then also being um, very active in progressive politics. And For me, a lot of my connection to God and to the divine and to however people want to think about God is through activism.
1: Do you feel like the landscape of Judaism from the perspective of a rabbinical student seems like a space that's open for the type of activism work that you've been doing?
0: Listen, I think we have room for what we make room for. Part of Reconstructionist Judaism is actually meeting Jews where they are, and so in this time, we have to understand where is the Jewish community now. And that is how the Jewish people will continue to thrive, is that if we're actually addressing where Jews are today. And where Jews are today is grappling with what the occupation means. And so if we are actively trying to shield ourselves from, from talking about that, then we're actually not being relevant to where Jews are today. What is your
1: response to people that say that religion and politics don't mix?
0: Um,
1: Or that they shouldn't?
0: I don't think that's reality. Faith leaders have always been involved with social justice movements, um, and that's not new. And I think that clergy in particular have a lot of symbolic power. And if we're not using that power in a way to actually build the world that we want to see, then I think we're wasting it a bit, to be honest.
1: When was a moment that you, that you felt self-doubt um, in the context of your spiritual beliefs or your anti-occupation work or the two of them intersecting? And I guess, like how did you move forward from that moment?
0: I you know, I'm not unique in the, the sense that this can be a really hard issue with family. And they I have, you know, family members who I'm very close to and I love very much that this has been really painful for us to disagree so sharply on this issue. Um, and that can be really hard because I don't want to end relationships or to hurt relationships because of my beliefs on this issue. So that's something I'm constantly grappling with, is like how to, how to love our people so deeply and to understand why they feel the way they do and to also be true to ourselves. As anti-occupation activists working in the Jewish community, we are doing a disservice to ourselves to not be compassionate with where people are coming from.
1: Do you approach the high holidays with an anti-occupation lens?
0: Yeah, I think there is there's not a distinction for me. I think it's actually really important um as anti-occupation Jews to understand that Judaism is really important. And that means that not everything we do has to be like pro-occupation anti-occupation, but we actually have to know what we're for and what we're fighting for too. And that means that we have to be connected to Jewish traditions that incorporate our anti-occupation work and are honest about that. Um, now, that can get complicated if you're at a you know, uh, Yom Kippur service and the rabbi is on the bima and is you know, ranting about how horrible Palestinians are. That makes your spiritual um, space difficult, and I acknowledge that. I think we have to be aware of how challenging it can be when politics that we don't align with are brought into our spiritual spaces. And we also have to make sure that we have cultural grounding too. That's not just about what we're against, but actually the the world that we wanna live in and rooting ourselves back in those traditions.
1: How do you view your high holiday practices, traditions, understanding being different this year now that you're in rabbinical school?
0: This is probably honestly the, the last year of my life that I will not work on the high holidays. And so I'm actually approaching a time where I'm gonna to have to constantly be thinking about how is this a powerful experience and meaningful experience for, um, for the Jews that are, who are, you know, deciding to participate in this. Um, and so, you know, I have to, I'm gonna be constantly thinking about how to um, make it both a space that feels comfortable and good for the most amount of people possible, and also to challenge people a bit too. And a lot of the High Holidays is actually about the challenge, is being like, hmm, I'm going to sit in the uncomfortableness of atonement. I'm going to sit in the uncomfortableness of having a hard conversation with a friend that I I know that I wronged this past year. And so I actually think, like, through an anti-occupation lens, this is a time where we can challenge people, too.
1: You brought up Yom Kippur specifically. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you to atone in the context of the occupation?
0: So I'll take a step back from that and say, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and this whole holiday season is all about um, reflection and forgiveness and teshuvah, repentance. And I think that this setup actually allows a lot of space for us as Jews. Um, And I think one thing that's challenging around anti-occupation work is so much of the culture ...presents it as pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, and it's very black and white. And I think we actually have opportunity with the high holidays to approach it with more complexity... ...and to actually acknowledge that, you know, the fact that my friend's homes have been demolished... Is, ...my Palestinian friend's homes have been demolished is horrible. And the fact that Israeli soldiers have to maintain an occupation and the psychological impact of that is horrible and the fact that our Jewish education has been manipulated to support Israel at all costs is horrible. And all of those horrors doesn't mean that we're not able to atone.
1: There's a lot of language around the high holidays about judgment Mm -hmm. and the importance of being written into the book of life. How do you connect to this language and what do you think it means for our community?
0: Mm, It's a big question. It's just um learning yesterday about in like liturgy it says that when the the gates initially of heaven initially open that people who are fully righteous are immediately written in the book of life and people who are fully evil are are immediately written off but really what that's saying is that no one is really either of those things. You know, we're, everyone is really in the middle. And it the, the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur actually allows us space to think about in that spectrum of righteous 100% to evil 100%. Where are we? And how can we get closer to that, to that side of righteousness?
1: Speaking of symbols relating to the high holidays, um, some of the physical objects and symbols that come up during the High Holidays, are Mm -hmm. very directly tied to Israel as a geographic space, especially the Etrog Mm -hmm. during Sukkot. For anti-occupation Jews or even Jews who maybe are just uncomfortable with the idea of settlements or are unsure of where they fall Mm -hmm. in that debate, how do you think that these physical symbols or just mentions of a physical place of Israel during the high holidays. How can we widen that community to include people that maybe don't want to overtly have those objects or symbols be a part of their spiritual practice?
0: You know, Judaism means a lot of different things to different people. And I think that it is our responsibility to find and create spaces that feel authentic for us. I think as far as, you know, ensuring that your etrog doesn't come from settlements, it's like it's a process to find that information. You know, I laughed that, you know, one of the challenging things I had in Israel last summer was figuring out which wine was and wasn't made in settlements, you know? And there was no like marker that's like made in settlements. And that's the same for religious symbols too. And that's that itself is actually the work that we need to do, right? is to be like, actually, you know, settlement construction and support of the occupation shouldn't be normalized and shouldn't just be a given. Um, and so I don't think I have, like, a magic answer of how to find your, like, anti-occupation etrog, but it's just, like, it's a long process of, um, of separating uh, Jewish identity from supporting the occupation.
1: And if not now, we have quite a few rabbinical students spread geographically in different cities, And uh, sometimes, you know, we call them the rabbis of the movement or, you know, even like radical rabbis to be. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you to be called a radical rabbi to be?
0: I want all rabbis to be radical rabbis is my like my goal. Like I. I want to be a rabbi that always has a social justice lens, but isn't necessarily a the social justice rabbi. Because for me, that's actually um, a, sim- a sign that we've won or that we are winning, is that myself, who has been very public about my anti-occupation work and other um, activist work, would actually not be seen as different, but would be seen just as one of the, you know, one of the rabbis. And for me, that's my goal: is to actually have. Um, to have that transformation in our community that our community is so obviously one that opposes the occupation is so obviously one that stands up for justice Um, and so like as far as what does it mean to be a radical rabbi to be I want to be in community with a lot of other radical rabbis and that then radical is just rabbi you know
1: Since I talked with Sarah, she's continued to settle in to her first semester at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. She's still in physical therapy for her arm, but she reports that she's at 80% recovery. At the end of our conversation, I asked Sarah to recommend books and resources for listeners who want to learn more about the occupation. You'll find links to these resources on our website, UnsettledPod.com. Unsettled is produced by Asaf Calderon, Yoshi Fields, Max Friedman, Alana Levinson, and me, Alana and I edited this episode. Original music by Nat Rosenzweig. Special thanks to Mark Winston Griffith and Brooklyn Deep. Our next episode will be a conversation with Palestinian activist and co-founder of Combatants for Peace, Suli Khatib. Go to our website, unsettledpod.com, for show information. You can now support Unsettled by becoming a monthly sustainer through Patreon. Like us on Facebook, find us on Twitter and Instagram, and most importantly, Subscribe! on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode of Unsettled.